Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. person are you? How do you weather difficult times? How do you stand up when everything else in life isn't lining up according to your desires? When everyone isn't treating you the way you deserve to be treated? When things don't turn out the way you expected, let's say you got married and you expected you're going to have a, a permanent maid and a, a permanent lover who's ready all the time and, and you thought everything was going to be exactly the way you wanted and it turned out this person has a mind of their own and they have needs of their own and you're disappointed because life didn't treat you fairly. What if real suffering hits your life? What if it's more than just disappointment that the world is in heaven on earth? What if something really bad happens to you? Something that is totally unthinkable. That thing which you hold in the back of your mind that if it ever happens, you're pretty sure you're going to come unraveled. What if that thing happens to you? I've got a few of those scenarios in my mind that I play through every once in a while when, for example, my wife is a little late getting back at driving home at night and I always wonder, is she in a car accident? I've often called the police department and said, do you have any reports of accidents? You know, because when she's sleepy, she doesn't even answer her phone. You have those worst-case scenarios, and the question really is, if that should ever happen to you, you won't be laughing then, right? I mean, what will that do to you? I think the passage this morning tackles that head-on, and I'd like us to read it together. This is taken out of the NIV translation. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. We began this morning by asking the simple question, what is the difference between those who suffer and become bitter and who suffer and become better. What is that difference? And I believe the crux of this passage is simply this. It's one simple point. The big difference is where our eyes are when we're suffering. What are you obsessing over? What are you staring or gazing upon while you're traveling through the trials of life? Because where your eyes are fixed will largely determine how you come out on the other side of that. And so I want to walk through this passage with you. And point out this main argument which Peter makes, which is that our eyes properly belong on Jesus Christ in the midst of our trials. It may seem like a no-brainer to say, but I continue to to marvel at how many Christians go through difficult times, and really it seems as I talk to them, not once account for Jesus in the whole story. They rattle off everything people have done to them, every way they've been let down, all the bad things that happen, and and they do not account for Jesus in that whole thing. That's why they often come out on the other side of that trial, bitter, not better. When you're struggling, your eyes and my eyes belong primarily 
on Jesus Christ. And so let's walk through some things about Jesus that are very important to gaze at when life goes south on you. The first thing that you should gaze at is Christ's attitude. If you know anything about me, you know I love pictures like that. That's like a manly picture right there. That gets me excited. You know why? It's not that he's going to go shoot some innocent person or be police brutality or some such nonsense. It's because I look at that and I think, that dude is ready for action. He's not feeling very nervous right now behind all that bulletproof armor and that huge gun. He is ready to tackle something. I think that's why people like watching SWAT teams in action. They have all this gear, all this equipment. They are ready for whatever comes their way. Can can I ask a favor? Would someone possibly give me a cup of water? And the reason I chose that picture will become clear to you in a minute. That first point, look at Christ's attitude comes from the first part of verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, listen, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Other translations have it this way. Arm yourself with the same attitude of Christ. Here's what I think that Peter is really saying. The first thing you have to gaze at when you're having difficulty is look at the way that Jesus thought about his own suffering. Think about the way Jesus faced his own struggles because if you have that same way of thinking about it, you'll probably come out of that struggle with the same result, the same victory that Jesus experienced. Now, way of thinking and attitude are really the same things, aren't they? Because your attitude usually defines how you process your thinking about anything. And the thing is, what is it that Jesus had as an attitude? How did he think about the struggles of his own life? Well, before I even explore that, I'm going to justify why I chose that picture. It says, arm yourselves. You know what that says to me? That says that the putting on of Christ's attitude and suffering must be a very intentional thing. See, suffering is not something you just kind of coast into and you hope that you'll come out okay. Nobody can face suffering unintentionally and come out well. Suffering scrambles us inside. Suffering brings out every weak inclination in our nature. If you're prone to whining or self-pity or all of those things, if you're prone to sensitivity or defensiveness, if any of these things are, are things you struggle with, I guarantee you suffering will do a number on you and everything you hate about your weaknesses, it will bring out of you very naturally. Thank you very much. And perhaps the worst part of it is you'll feel justified. Because you're suffering, you feel like you have a right to act this way. You feel like everybody around you will just kind of give you a pass because who wouldn't act this way when you're going through so much? Can you relate to that? I mean, I know I do. I have certain weaknesses when I go through tough times and I fall right into them and I expect everyone to just kind of go, well, what do you expect? Well, you know what we expect? We expect better because we have the life of Christ coursing through us. And so I tell you in the same spirit in which Peter said it, that as you face your suffering... There has to be this intentional putting on, this gearing up. You you know those scenes in the movies where the protagonist who's an action hero is like sticking the magazines into his, and he's fastening. I love those scenes where he's like, I'm ready. 
My favorite part of the Rocky movies is after the initial beat-up, when he goes into that serious training, you know, and Eye of the Tiger's playing, and he's lifting logs, and, and he's like, you see him getting more committed, more, more intense by the minute, and you're sure that he's going to win. That's the moment we love. And he says, if you're going to endure suffering and come out better and rather than bitter, right now in this room, you have to begin the process of putting on a whole different way of thinking about suffering. Now, there's so much that could be said about this, but I'm only going to say really one thing about it. What is this attitude, this mindset, with which Christ faced his suffering? I, I really believe that the author of Hebrews gives us a very big hint here. When he says in Hebrews 12, too, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So far, that's exactly what we've been saying, gazing at him, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's a really bizarre verse. Because I can't really think of a good way in my natural way of thinking to connect joy and the cross. Right? And yet it says that the main attitude which Jesus had when he faced his crucifixion is that he was compelled by the joy that was set before him. I think that's very, very instructive for us. What is this joy that Jesus saw in the face of his own suffering? What is it? Well, I think among the, the, the joys that were set before him were the faces of those, the tears of those, who would one day find salvation in his grace and would rejoice that their load is lifted and they're forgiven not by anything we've done, but because Jesus has forgiven us. When, he, when, when somebody's given their life as a hero and sacrifice, part of what compels them is the visions of all the lives that will continue going on with hope and with joy because of what they've done. You know, when you're in, in a time of war and you throw your body over that grenade, I guess the minute you're thinking of doing it, you're hoping your buddies will go on to have great lives. You're not hoping they'll end up on skid row being drunks and, you know, wasting the remainder of their lives that you jumped on a grenade to, to allow. You're hoping that they will go on. And I think the joy of the Lord, partly, was that He saw our lives, saw how happy we are to have the prospect of eternal life and a relationship with God. You know that feeling of weight that was lifted off your shoulders when you became saved? Those of you who walk with Jesus, do you remember it? I still remember it literally like it was yesterday. August of 1984, I, I can still feel, I don't know if you, you've kind of experienced this, I can still feel the exact emotion I felt the day that I came to be saved in Jesus Christ. Do you remember that? Because it's that feeling which multiplied by millions Jesus saw, and that was a huge part of the joy. But I think standing behind that was an even greater joy which Jesus saw. And it was the pleasure of his father. As he looked at his faithful son and said, this is so difficult for you, it borders on impossible for you to do. How can you be innocent, totally sinless, and go to a horrible death for people who are hardly thankful to you? Who did everything to ruin their own lives and now you're going to pay the price? Do you realize how impossible a situation that was for any human being to face? And as he watched his son obediently face the cross nonetheless, Jesus could sense what great joy his father took in that faithful obedience. You know, let me tell you something. If that's a little too theological for you, 
I have children, and if you don't have children, you can't relate to that. Do you have parents? <laughs> I don't see how you could be sitting here and not have parents unless you belong under in Area 51 or something. Right? I mean, we all have parents at least. And you know the funny thing about children is they long for the pleasure of their parents. Isn't it funny to watch kids playing and you just sort of want to read your novel and sit on a lawn chair while they're running around in the driveway? But instead, every five seconds, Dad, look at me. I jumped. And you're like, oh, good jump. That was a really good jump. You don't care. You're like, I saw you jump a million times. They, they want you to go, oh, because they love that. They love feeling the pleasure and approval of their parents. And you know the truth is, we never outgrow that. My counseling ministry is living proof that we never outgrow that. Some of us as adults, our biggest issues are still related to a lifelong desire to feel the pleasure and approval of our mom or dad and never getting it. And we want it so badly. You know, you could be a 50-year-old man. You get a promotion, you become vice president of such and such. Who's the first person you want to call? You want to call your mom and dad and try to explain to them, especially if they're immigrants, you're like, um, it's kind of like a really big, important person. And you love the moment when your parents go, oh, yeah. If you're Asian, you know what that son, yeah. My son is a big shot. My daughter is the boss of everything. And you just love that. And you beam in it. You bask in that pleasure because every last one of us longs for the approval of our parents. That's the very joy which Jesus saw and compelled him to the cross. Is he loved his father and he knew that if he was faithful through this, his father would delight over him. And that captivated him. So that despite the awfulness of the trial set before him, it was not the difficulties and the ugliness that he saw, but he saw past those things to the joy that was set before him. The joy of the Father's pleasure, the joy of His own glorification, these are the things which obsess the mind of Christ as He faced the cross. Now make no mistake, He still knew how bad it was going to be. Listen to His last prayer in Gethsemane. He privately prayed, God, if there's any way this could be taken away, please remove it. And yet, not my will, but yours be done. Because Jesus had found a way to see past his own difficulty to realize the pleasure of God weighed more on him than what he would have to endure. You know, for a lot of people, trials just break them. It's like just because they have difficult situations, they start to change as people. And that confounds me. Why should a difficult circumstance change who I am or who you are as a person? Hey, let me put it another way. It's a stupid illustration. I just thought of it this morning, okay? So forgive me if it's stupid. But listen, imagine how frustrating it would be if every time your car was low on gas, it would only go backwards. That would be a pretty stupid design for a car. But that's the way some of us are. We get a little low in the gas tank and suddenly we completely operate in a different way. And the challenge is, can you get past the difficulty of your situation and still remain focused on who you are and who God is? Not change fundamentally as a person. Not become this defensive, protective, bitter, cynical person. But can you still function the way you always function despite the difficulty of your trials? And one of the keys to that is being obsessed with God and His pleasure, not you and your difficulties. Where your eyes are matter for everything when you're struggling. 
You know, it's funny. Sometimes when my children are hurting, I so long to comfort them. You know how it is when kids are like angry or upset about something, they're disappointed. You know, you know especially when they're disappointed, they thought they were going to get to play outside, but the sun set a little earlier than we thought, and mom or dad said, no, you can't go out. And they're like, oh, and they're all mad in the room. I want to comfort them because I know what it feels like to be disappointed. So sometimes I go to the room and I try to, you know, kind of do that whole daddy thing like, come here, what? I know, you're really disappointed. When I was growing up, I had to, and they just go, eh. they kick you, they're like, oh, I don't want to talk to anyone, I just want to be mad. And I just, something kind of sets my teeth on edge, and I, I feel very distant from that kid. And he misses out on the father's heart, which I was trying to bless him with. Or her, I don't want to give away the gender. You know. But check it out. Once in a while, my kids, when they're disappointed and they're hurt, and I go to hold them, in their sorrow, they reach up for me instinctively. You know that, parents, you know that kind of hug where they're so sad, they just want to, uh, and they want to become part of the inside of your body. Like, yeah. And when you feel that kid grabbing onto you and, and clinging onto you, doesn't that do something to your mother or father's heart? And when I hold that kid back, it's not just a pat-pat hug. It's like a soul hug. I'm pouring out every last ounce of fatherness I've got in me. And that kid is healed through it. They receive something. And the challenge I have for you this morning is simple. Can you see past your pain to the father whose joy can heal you? Whose joy can carry you through that? Maybe your mother or father on earth never gave you the satisfaction of their praise and affirmation. But your heavenly father loves delighting in you and me. Our Heavenly Father pays attention to everything. He sees what you do in secret. And He loves to delight in you. He will more than make up for whatever unfinished business you've been carrying around because of your mom or dad. And if you look at Him, He'll carry you through your trials. I'm going to give you a couple more quick things to look at here. There's Christ's Lordship. We've got to be careful how we understand the second half of verse 1. I want you to look at this. It says, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, I think that's a bit of a strange and awkward translation. It could lead to the wrong idea that just because you suffered means somehow you're magically immune to the temptation of sin. I think that's the wrong way of thinking about it. Actually, I think the New Living Translation has got it right. When it says... When it says this, For if you are willing to suffer for Christ, you have decided to stop sinning. If you are willing to suffer for Christ, you have decided to stop sinning. I think that's really more the spirit of what it's saying. For those people who willingly face suffering because it's part of their journey of obedience to Christ, those people, it's like a declaration of independence And it's like saying out loud to your own soul, I'm done with this slavery to my flesh. I'm done with giving in to those raging impulses within me that wants to lash out and take vengeance and and really rip into people. I'm done serving only myself. I've made a decision to actually serve God and it's going to make a difference in my heart and my attitude because those people who have willingly decided even to suffer for Christ have declared their independence 
from the powerful grip that sin and self-centeredness has on the human soul. Are you following me here? It's a way of saying that I am no longer going to just live for myself, but for God. That's what verses 2 and on are all about. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Do you follow that? It's like saying, I'm not just going to live for my fleshly passions anymore. I decide today that this life, this time, energy, resources is devoted to living for God's will. Here's an interesting thing he says. The time that is past suffices. It's, it's a kind of old way of saying, you know, all the things we used to do, giving into our flesh, well, those things are behind us. And all that time that's already under the bridge, well, that's enough time wasted. That's behind us now. Now, this little list of sins, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatries. It sounds like my college years. No, I'm just kidding. Only in part. You know, sounds like some of your college years, I know, all right? Sounds like some of your weekend. But listen, that whole thing right there, it's not like just six or seven specific things. It's representative of an entire lifestyle built around servicing my own fleshly needs first. You know, I look at that list, all I see in there is somebody who doesn't know how to say no to themselves because there's no reason to. And the thing is this, let, let me enlighten you on something. You cannot say no to good things on earth unless you have someone to say yes to beside yourself. If you don't have any other master, then you will very naturally become your own master. Does that make sense to you? And that's why in the next verse, Peter acknowledges, with respect to this, they, meaning the unbelieving world, are surprised when you did not join them in all that behavior. And they mock you or malign you for it. Here's what it's really saying. He's saying that unless you know the true king, Jesus Christ, it is insane to not live for yourself. You get that? And so when you finally meet Jesus and encounter a worthy king, and your whole life changes around his authority, and people hear you saying things like, well, I'm doing this for Christ, or I think this is the right thing to do in this situation, not the natural thing, but the godly thing, they just don't get it. I mean, how many of you have been drunk before? You don't have to raise your hand. <clears throat> I have been drunk before, and I liked it. Okay, does that you, you can you can stop going to this church if you're that sensitive? You know, I realize I just pushed you away. But listen, that was before I knelt before Jesus as Lord, and I have been drunk, and I mean like drunk. And you know what? I loved it. I love the feeling of losing control. I love the feeling that every bad thing I hated in my life just melted away. I'm not trying to promote alcoholism. <clears throat> I'm saying to you that when I got into a really bad place, that was the most enjoyable and natural thing for me to do, was drink my sorrows away. And it worked to a degree. Only problem was I'd wake up the next day with a greater mountain of sorrows than I started with, feeling worse about myself, and in fact feeling less capable to cope than the night before. But the reason I did it was because I had no other instinct. There was no other master giving me a counterpoint 
an opposing perspective, another set of instructions that would actually build me up. So I did what comes naturally to everyone. I took care of me. I serviced the needs of this demanding flesh because who else will you listen to? Why do you think alarm clocks were invented? If there was no reason to get up, would any of us ever get up? I was laughing because we had a, 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 one of our, our kids' friends sleep over this past weekend. I won't say who they were, but they said, sometimes on Saturdays, my dad sleeps really late. And I said, how late? Oh, I don't know, like 11? I said, oh, that's very late. But you know what? That's awesome. That's what weekends are for. When you have no reason to get up, who wants to hear the annoying, eh, 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 eh? You know, that's terrible. The reason we wake up is because there's something worthier than sleep to say yes to. And so we arise in the morning when our bodies don't want to. This is how we actually find strength to get through struggles. is that we gaze upon Jesus who is Lord and has authority to demand of us hardship in the course of following him. And there used to be a time in our lives when all we did was listen to ourselves. We serviced every inclination of this flesh, every small demand it made. We said, yes, sir. And we gave ourselves what we demanded of life. But those days are behind us. We wasted enough time living like that. And now in the face of Christ, the one true worthy king, we have a whole different set of directions for life. We gaze upon him and see in him a lordship which can provide structure, framework, strengthening to bring us through the trials of our lives. The kind of structure that says, I know you're going to want to bail out, but hold the line, stay the course, and I will get you on the other side just fine. Just don't be distracted by all the trials along the way. Do what I've told you, and I promise you all will be well on the other side of this trial. And if you don't acknowledge Jesus as Lord, you will follow your gut. And every time it gets to be too much, you will bail. You will give up on the way that God told you to do things. Remember Peter who said, how many times should we forgive, Lord? Three times? Seven times? No, 70 times seven. I'm sure Peter in the the vernacular translation would say, what? 70 times? That's ridiculous. Some of you are in in that situation right now. There's someone you keep having to forgive and you're getting so sick of forgiving. And the question of the day for you is, when do I get to stop forgiving this fool? When do I get to flush this relationship down the toilet, rip it off the bottom of my shoe like a piece of annoying gum that was stuck there for the last three years? When do I get to ditch this person? And the Word of God says you never, ever get to. You always, always forgive. And you hear that, you go, you don't know my marriage you don't know my child. You don't know my boss. I can't, I'm done. I can't. And in the midst of that trial, you're so tempted because you've always listened only to yourself to say, I'm done. I'm quitting now. And God says, hold the course. Observe me as Lord, and I will get you to the other side much better than if you follow your own instincts. The Lordship of Jesus Christ can help us weather our storms in life. Do you believe that? For some of you, this is the thing you most need to hear, and it's probably the point where I may have lost you. Because if you're obsessed with your suffering, it's probably because your eyes are always on you and on the mirror. And this point isn't sexy to a heart like that. But this is the very thing you need to hear. 
is that right now in the midst of your troubles, it's not you that needs comforting. It's you that needs to observe the lordship of Jesus Christ and to obey him as Lord. That is the means by which you will emerge on the other side of this trial, victorious and better. Let me give you one last thing to be looking at. Christ's return. Christ's return. Verses 5 and 6, here's what it says. This passage draws to a close with kind of an ominous note. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. It's a bit of a confusing couple verses, and let me unpack them for you. Those aren't really popular words in verse 5, especially in, in the age of seeker-driven evangelism. We don't like to speak often of the God who judges. We don't even like to speak often of sin. We like to talk about weaknesses and failures and mistakes and human nature. But there is such a thing as sin and such a thing as a God with high standards who comes to judge the world, both the living and the dead. You can't escape that reality. No matter how many ways you blur your eyes and and look at the Bible upside down, it still comes out. This is one of the inescapable facts of the kingdom of God. Your present trials, this whole universe, all of your dissatisfactions, all your joys, none of it will last forever. None of it. That beautiful car you just bought, the gorgeous house you're building, the perfect job you just landed... The misery you live with every day, none of this will last forever. History, though it feels that way sometimes, is not stuck on a skipping loop and just going to repeat forever and ever. One day it will end. One day everything will be finished. Whether it's our own death or the return of Jesus, this whole experience has an expiration date. And when Christ returns, he will come to reboot the whole system. But part of it, and I have as a first graphic, this mock keyboard that a Mac fan made of a Microsoft keyboard. It just has control, alt, and delete as the only keys. That's all you ever need. But you know, that's, that's, those are familiar keystrokes for what? Rebooting the system. Saying this one's all finished, we're going to do a clean sweep and reinstall everything. Or we're going to reboot and reinstall. And God is going to come like the ultimate IT professional and re-image the universe. Do you get that? You IT guys know what I mean when I say re-image. I mean, he's going to take it and make it all new again. But part of that whole experience is something called the judgment. And before he just erases and replaces, he needs to figure out what's what. And when he comes, he will come as an authority sitting on a throne of judgment and he will weigh every life that has ever been lived. And that is a reality which we must live in the light of. It is that reality that drives us with a sense of urgency to speak the good news of the gospel to as many people as we can. Because whether they're happy in their lives or not, whether they think they feel safe or not, one day we believe in faith that this moment will come upon them and they, just like us, will give an account of our lives before a holy God. And I don't fold my arms and say, someday they'll get their just desserts. I mean, some days I feel like that. 
But most days I'm motivated to say, if you only knew that day was coming, you would get yourself right with God through his free offer of mercy and love. But you know, for the Christian who is hearing that, sometimes the idea of Christ's judgment produces the wrong impulse in us. It produces a strange kind of stress where we feel like, oh, then I've got to basically live on top of my game 24-7. And when we fail, when we're not at our best, we get totally down on ourselves and we beat ourselves up. And I want to assure you, that is not the spirit in which Peter concluded this passage with those words. He's not saying, now listen, I know you're going through trials, but God will come to judge you, so be at your best behavior. I don't think that's the spirit at all in which Peter offers these last two verses. But he talks about the judgment to shine light on the gospel as good news. He said, listen, I know you're going through trials, and none of us are going to stand up under the final judgment on our own merits. And certainly hard times will make it even worse for us because in hard times we sin even more. So I know that through all this trial, some of you are going to feel like terrible failures. And yet here you are knowing that one day we will all give account of our lives to God. That's why verse 6 gives us hope. He says, this is why the gospel, the good news of God's free mercy was preached even to those who died before these words are being read. Those who heard about Christ, who had hope in him, but did not live to see his life and resurrection. Even those who hoped in Christ, but did not live to see him, are going to be saved in the same way that you and I are, through the preaching of the good news, which is that even the worst of failures are redeemable, because God is greater than our sin. Because for every failure we endure, God's mercy is stronger still. So when we go through trials and we live in light of Christ's final judgment, it should produce not desperation, not anxiety, but a humility that says, God, I beg for your mercy again. These trials are kicking my butt. My attitude has been horrible. I have sought self-medication through all my habitual sins because I felt like these trials gave me the right to do that. And I've made a mess of things And I come back to you and I say, Lord, please help me to cling to the good news of the gospel again. Because I know one day you're giving an account. And right now I'm tempted to feel like I'll be disqualified at that judgment because of what I've done wrong. Please remind me that I will stand in that judgment because of what you have done, not because of what I'm doing now. Does that make sense to you? So the first two points are about ratcheting up our attitudes and our behavior But the last point is giving us comfort that says, though you will try, you will probably fail along the way, but don't give up. Because those first two points are still valid. Follow Christ's example. Honor Him as Lord, and when you fail, get up and keep going, because those are the only ways you're going to get through pain and struggle victoriously. Do you get that? This last point is not to erase the first two, but to energize and propel the first two, to say you do your best, and when you fail at doing your best, get up and seek the gospel message of redemption, and then do your best again, because God is worthy of that. God is worthy of it. And he has guaranteed you the steam and the stamina to press on if you will believe the gospel. Is this making sense to you guys? Some of you, you may need to chew on this. I'm looking around the room. There's a lot of this going on, and I don't know if that means you're being challenged and blessed or you're struggling, but give it some thought, and I think you'll realize. 
That the judgment of Christ for the Christian is a very energizing prospect because it reminds us again where our safety and confidence comes from. We throw ourselves at God's mercy and say, help me to get through this. I'm a failure, but you will win for me. And We press on. Some of you need to hear this because you have gone through a trial that has changed who you are as a person. If you just look up here for a second and let me just connect with you. You've gone through something that was very painful and unjust. And you expected and deserved better than what you got from life and from other people. And you find that somehow deep inside it's changing who you are as a person. Making you cynical, sarcastic, bitter, untrusting. In fact, it started to cause you to drift a little bit from God Who's innocent in all this? He's like, well, why are you falling, falling away from me? What do I have to do with all this? And yet God is also losing out on you. And you're hearing these words and you're feeling like, still, I've wore this cynicism and pain and bitterness for so long, it's like a cozy sweater I don't want to take off. I kind of like this secluded, isolated place where my life has fallen. I like keeping people at arm's length. I like guarding my boundaries. And I believe the challenge of God to you is rethink where you are today. Suffering should not change deeply who you are as a person. It should only bring about more of the good things which God is producing in you. Do not let the trials of life have that much power because the power of God to shape you is greater still. If you're letting bitterness, cynicism take over your life, put a stop to it. The power of Jesus Christ today. Decide in your heart. So help me, God. I gotta, I gotta take off this old sweater. I've been wearing it too long. I need to change my heart, and I need to stop letting my struggles have all the power to define who I am. God is shaping me. He deserves that much in my life. Amen. Why don't we bow together for prayer? You know, there's a lot to work through in this passage, and uh, it was a bit difficult to work through verse by verse. But as you walk away from here, the message is actually quite simple. Trials can deeply change us for better or for worse. And if we're going to be changed by them for the better, then our eyes belong fixed and gazing upon Jesus Christ who is using those trials to do a good work in shaping us. And we'll succeed in that work if we continue looking at him and focusing on him through the tough times. If you're going through a trial and it's changing you, this morning you need to pray. I invite you. Help me to take off this garment of bitterness. And please come into my life and start afresh that shaping work in me. Why don't we just pause for a moment of silence and we'll just pray to our God quietly in response to that.
pray together. Lord, we wish we had a while longer to stay and just sit in your presence and continue this good work. And I pray you that what you've begun in here today, you'll be faithful to continue even as we walk out of here. Some have walked a long time deep in the clutches of bitterness because they struggled truly. Somehow along the way, their eyes fell off of you and fell upon their circumstances and upon themselves. Rescue those who are stuck as if their feet are cemented in concrete. Help them to walk away from those old familiar feelings and walk towards the light of a new person that you are shaping them into. And Father, when we face trials in the future, as we surely will, let those trials enhance the good things you're doing in us and not change us for the worse deep down inside. Help us to have the same mindset as Christ, fixing our eyes on the joy and delight of our Heavenly Father. Help us to see you as Lord, to be done with the days when we lived as the kings on our own thrones. You are the true King. And as we follow you in obedience, we will make it to the other side victorious and intact. And Lord, though we will press on and try our best, so help us, God. We will fail in this. And in those days, as we think about that final judgment, remind us again with great relief and joy that it is the gospel in which we stand. It is you who causes us to survive that judgment. And help us to lay claim to that grace, and to get up and keep pressing on again. For you are worthy of our perseverance, and you are the one who empowers it. May this church weather all of our storms together, because our eyes are fixed on Jesus, in whose great name we lift up this prayer. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.